This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. We read from God's Word this morning in Luke chapter 18. Gospel according to Luke chapter 18. We read one parable of Jesus in verses 9 through 14. 9 through 14 of Luke 18. A familiar parable with a lesson that is taught in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 30. Luke 18, verse 9. And he, that is Jesus Christ, spake this parable unto certain with which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank Thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Read that far in God's holy and inspired word. We now turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 30. And we consider question and answer 81 and 82 today. So page 18, Lord's Day 30, question and answer 81 and 82. This is the last part of the Catechism's explanation on the Lord's Supper in particular. Question and answer 81 says, For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ, and that their remaining infirmities are covered by His passion and death, and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened, and their lives more holy. But hypocrites, and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves. Are they also to be admitted to this supper who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No, for by this the covenant of God would be profaned and His wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, it is the duty of the Christian church according to the appointment of Christ and His apostles to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven till they show amendment of life. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, question 81, question 81 asks, for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? Think about that question. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? That question, we can 
ask in a slightly different way. Who may enjoy fellowship with God at His table? Who may enjoy fellowship with God at His table? That's the same question. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? Or who may enjoy fellowship with God at His table? And you can hear how critical that question is. This question is not only about the Lord's Supper, though it is, but it's a question and an answer of theological significance. Who may come to the Lord's Supper and there enjoy fellowship with God? Question 81 of Lord's Day 30 is indeed about who may enjoy fellowship with God. I remind you as a proof of that, that the table, the table upon which the Lord's Supper is served, that table is a symbol of fellowship. Christ is the host at His table, and there He is present to show the breaking of His body and the shedding of His blood for us who partake. There He feeds us. There He nourishes us. There He speaks to us the comforting words of our forgiveness and of our strengthening unto a, unto a godly life. And as the hand of the mouth and hand in the mouth of the, uh, of the body takes the bread and wine, we have seen that the, the hand and mouth of the soul that is faith the Spirit and powers to receive Jesus Christ. At the Lord's Supper, we experience, we enjoy this fellowship with God. Who may come? Who may partake? And at the table, enjoy this fellowship with Christ. Well, what is the answer? It should be obvious that the answer is not anyone that's basic to reform church polity. Not anyone is allowed to come to the Lord's Supper. The answer is not, even if you are unrepentant, you may come to the Lord's Supper. It is not... Even if your faith is passive and dormant, you may come and fellowship with God at the Lord's Supper. Look at the last part of answer 81 for now. But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts. That turning refers to repentance in particular. Such as turn not to God with sincere hearts. Eat and drink judgment to themselves. They don't have the enjoyment of their salvation and the enjoyment of fellowship with God, but rather receive instead judgment to themselves. The catechism is clear. On the basis of Scripture, it bars from the Lord's Supper anyone who does not come with repenting, believing heart. Even more serious from the passage from Scripture that we read in Luke 18, Jesus teaches explicitly that one will not experience justification unless one comes with a repenting heart. Who went home to his house justified? Jesus says very clearly, not both, not anyone who came to church that day but only the publican who cried, Be merciful to me, the sinner. Who may experience fellowship with God at His table? Who will leave justified? That's not just a theological question, that's a question about you today. Only a repenting believer. That's exceedingly practical. It's practical not only about how to come to the Lord's Supper. It's practical not only or applicable not only about coming to church, but this is the way of life for a Christian. 
The Christian ought to be a repenting believer. He ought to be like this publican throughout his life and and not like this Pharisee. Examine your hearts today. When Jesus, Jehovah from His throne on high, looks down with clear and searching eye on all that dwell below, what kind of hearts does He see? Lord's Supper. Only for the repenting believer. That's the title. The theme of this sermon based on Lord's Day 30, question answer 81 and 82. First, the proper partaker. Second, the solemn duty. And finally, the enjoyment of mercy. Proper partaker, the solemn duty, and then the enjoyment of mercy. Before coming to the Lord's Supper, where we experience fellowship with God, Christ does require, and He gives by His Spirit, but He does require that we find in our souls three spirit-wrought heart activities. Three spirit-wrought heart activities. There are really three aspects of one activity we can call repentance, but three spirit-wrought heart activities must be found. Sorrow for sin, trust in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness, and a desire, thankful desire, for Christ to strengthen faith and my life of holiness. Question and answer 81 gives us those three descriptions of the spirit-wrought heart activity. Those should be very familiar to us. They're not only here in question and answer 81, they're in the Lord's Supper form. When we're called there to examine ourselves, the same three are listed. These are parallel to the three sections of the Heidelberg Catechism. That should make you think, catechism students, how great my sins and miseries. That's the first my sorrow for my sin, how I might be delivered from my sins and miseries, that's trust in Jesus Christ alone, and how I might show my thankfulness to God, that there's that desire, thankful desire from, for, for strengthening to live a holy life. And so I bring this to you, and part of me feels a little foolish explaining this to you because it should be so familiar And yet I remind you, because what is familiar to us isn't always that which is in our hearts, as Jesus shows here in this parable. First, there must be a sincere sorrow for my sin. Those who come to the Lord's Supper, those who come to enjoy fellowship with God must have a sincere sorrow for sin. My sin. That's the first spirit-wrought activity of the heart. My own sin. That's what we sorrow for. The first section of the Hutterberg Catechism. You know it, Catechism students, I tell you to recite it to me. It's not sin. It's not even just sins and miseries. Or, but it's rather how great my sins and miseries are. The Pharisee of Jesus' parable, notice, acknowledged sin. In fact, we could even say that the Pharisee of Jesus' parable sorrowed for sin. I'm not as other men are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican, he, if he was present today, he may have said something like this, oh, how dark this world is, how great sin is all around us, sexual predators, homosexuals, lesbians, 
divorced and remarried drunkards, Sabbath breakers, slanderers, schismatics, teachers of false doctrine, what terrible sin there is, what apostasy. We're very good at that. Sorrowing for sin, other people's sins. We're also especially good at sorrowing for other sins against us. And, and it's not wrong to sorrow about other sins against our, us. It, it hurts. It, it, it's painful. Real wounds are caused. I'm not, not at all minimizing real wounds. Long-term wounds even that we must suffer with through the rest of our lives because of sins against us. But beloved, the main sorrow of our lives is not other people's sins or even others' sins against us. If that is our focus as a church or as an individual, we will lose the Gospel. Simple as that. It's a real danger of that. It's my sin. Our sin that I sorrow for, first and foremost. That I am to blame for my own, not other sins against me, but I am to blame for my own sin, my anger, my sinful response to another's sin against me, my gossip about them, my pride, my covetousness, my worldliness, and yes, my self-righteousness. Like this Pharisee. Think of that publican who came into the temple before the holy God. Yes, the publican knew there were other sinners along with him. But when he came before the presence of the holy God in his temple, the holiness of God so burned within his heart and exposed his heart's filth, that the publican could only think about how he was the sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner, literally. I, I'm, I am chief. This sorrow, as you know, is not a sorrow for the consequences of sin primarily. Again, I, I can qualify and say, yes, we're going to sorrow for consequences for sin. No one likes a spanking, right, children? No one likes a spanking, whether it be delivered by the hand of an earthly parent or it be delivered by the hand of God through other consequences in life. No one likes it. No one enjoys it. No one likes church discipline. No one likes a broken marriage or conflict in the church or in families. But God's purpose, remember, is that He uses the sorrow of the consequences to direct our attention to the sorrow for our sin. And the sorrow for sin is that my sin is against God. That I have provoked Him to His face. That I've even come here this morning into His very presence and, and I haven't taken Him seriously. And I've sinned before Him in His special presence in His house of worship. I have pierced my Savior there upon the cross with my sin, with my guilt. A worthy partaker of the supper is one who knows himself unworthy. The publican stood afar off and would not lift up his so much as his eyes into heaven but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. By the way, that's not a boast. Look at my depravity. That's not, obviously, a boast. Look, I hold to the doctrine of total depravity. And others do not. It's the opposite of what the publican was doing. Rather, it was a broken and contrite heart. And that the Lord does not despise. The second spirit wrought activity which we must have in our hearts, familiar to us. First is sorrow for my sin. Second is 
trust in Jesus Christ alone for my forgiveness and all of my salvation. The publican in Jesus' parable sought for God's mercy. You heard, you hear, you hear that, that familiar cry, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And the, the mercy that he sought was particularly, especially, first and foremost, forgiveness, be merciful to me, pardon me. And that's clear from Jesus' words in verse 14. He uses the word justify. That's, that's forgiveness. I want, I want God to declare to me that I'm righteous. Be merciful to me. That's how he came to the temple. Clinging to the mercy of God. Looking at the sacrifice that was burning in the temple upon the altar of burnt offering. Looking there that on the basis, on the basis of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, God would declare to his unrighteous soul that he was righteous. He came trusting that God would do that for him in spite of him. Is that how you come to the Lord's Supper? Is that how you come to church? Is that how you come praying for the forgiveness of sins in your prayers? The Catechism says, yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ. And that their remaining infirmities are covered by His passion and death. Lord's Supper is for those who have a spirit-wrought sorrow for my sin, but not a wallowing in the sinking sand of that sin. Rather, a leaning and a standing upon the rock of Jesus Christ where all of the ground is sinking sand. It's a seeking of God's mercy in Jesus alone. A trust. The activity of believing. Third, the spirit wrought activity we must have in our souls before coming to the supper. And as we come to the supper, first, sorrow for sin, second, trust in Christ alone for forgiveness, and third, there is a desire. There is a desire for a stronger faith and a holier life. who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened in their lives, more holy. Let me point out immediately, as the Catechism implies, that with that, there's an acknowledgement that my faith isn't, isn't strong. I, I come with faith, but this, that faith is so weak. I need Christ Himself to strengthen the very faith that I must have. I need Christ Himself to give me the holy life that I still, I still need to improve in. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Mark 9.24 my, my, my beginning of holiness is, is a very, very small beginning. Sometimes we can't even see that beginning as we come to the Lord's Supper. The repenting believer's heart desires strengthening from Christ at the Lord's Supper. He desires improvement. He does not come, the publican does not come to the house of God with an antinomian spirit. Forgive me so that tomorrow I can sin and grace may abound. He does not come with an indifference. If, if I sin again and it happens, it happens. If next weekend I fall into drunkenness again, it ha that's fine. If, if, if I fall into lust and, and, and I click again, I'm okay with that. It, it, 
No, that's not a repentant heart. That's not a repenting believer. Yes, you may fall. I should say we will fall into sin again. We're talking about the heart's desire. We're not talking about a change of my whole life around that that hasn't happened yet even. I desire that. One who trusts in Jesus Christ truly for forgiveness also trusts in Jesus Christ for sanctification. And he desires that power of sanctification. So who may come to the Lord's Supper and there enjoy fellowship with God? Two ditches. Two errors. One, the catechism doesn't say you must do good works in order to come to the Lord's Supper. You must improve your life to a certain degree that fits the works of other people in the church and then you may come. No. That would be a form of work righteousness. But it doesn't say this either. Nothing. Just come. The heart is not passive when it comes to the supper. They're experiencing fellowship with God. The heart will be, by the power of the Holy Spirit, must be, sorrowing for my sin, trusting in Jesus alone for forgiveness, and desiring His help for improvement. Only such may come to the supper Only such will experience fellowship with God at His supper. Only such will leave justified, experiencing that justification. Two kinds of people, the Catechism says, may not come to the supper. Two kinds. First, a hypocrite. Second, the insincere. First, there is a hypocrite. But hypocrites eat and drink judgment to themselves. Literally, a hypocrite is a play actor. The picture is of a Hollywood star. The picture is someone who performs in a skit, who acts out a part that is not himself. He acts outwardly like a religious person, but inwardly he is full of deceit and unbelief. And here when the catechism and Jesus speaks of the hypocrite, listen carefully, when Jesus and, and, and the Harvard Catechism here speaks of the hypocrite, such references are not to one who acts hypocritically sometimes, who might be fake with you. So after church, you might go up to someone and, and, and ask them, how are you doing? And, and that person might say, I'm fine. But things aren't going fine in their lives. They just act like that is going fine. That would be a hypocritical, a sort of hypocrisy when we're fake with each other. But hypocrite here is not referring to someone like that. Hypocrite here is referring to someone who acts like a believer but has no faith at all. One who acts like a religious person but has no new man in him at all. One who acts like he's alive spiritually but is totally, de- totally depraved, period. Scripture tells us of Judas Iscariot playing the part of a disciple, of a friend of Jesus, but full of hatred, even as he partook of the Lord's Supper. Jesus called the Pharisees whited sepulchers who were beautiful like a white headstone on a, on a grave, but 
inwardly full of dead man's bones. Such a hypocrite knows he is a hypocrite. Such a hypocrite, the kind particularly that is in the external church, does not ever have a true sorrow for sin, does not ever have a trust in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness, does not have a desire that Christ help him with spiritual strengthening. He is a hardened man. And his heart is only getting harder. He is not worried that he might be a hypocrite. Perhaps some might, in their doubts and weaknesses, children of God, wonder, am I a hypocrite? Be worried, concerned, anxious about that. Now the hypocrite Jesus is talking about here is one who is hardened. He even enjoys playing the part. The Pharisee is one whom Jesus describes here as a hypocrite in verse 9, certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. There is a heart's trust in self, not in Christ. That's the heart of a hypocrite. He does outwardly good works to make himself look righteous. I'm a church member. Look at what I do. And then compares his good works to others who do not have such outwardly good works so that he might boost his own ego. He acts like he's praying, but Jesus says he prayed thus with himself, meaning he wasn't really praying. He spoke of thanks. Prayer is the chief part of thanks. Outwardly looked like he was engaging in that. Thanks. But he was really, if he was praying with himself, thanking himself. Such an hypocrite eats and drinks judgment to himself, even making his condemnation in hell the worse. The Catechism speaks not only of a hypocrite that may not partake of the Lord's Supper, though he or she does often, but second, of one who is insincere, insincere. That's different from a hypocrite, such as turn not to God with sincere hearts. Such a one refers to a believer. A child of God, an elect, one whom Christ has died for, but who temporarily falls into sin. He continues impenitently in sin for a while. He's not sorry for his sin. He's not looking to Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness. He has no desire at his sin or in his sin to please God. I thank thee, the Pharisee illustrates such an insincerity, that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week and give tithes of all that I possess, and that we may include any outward good work. I attend services twice on Sunday. I go to society I do my devotions. I hold to true doctrines. I'm a member of the purest manifestation of a true church. I am not as other people are. It's a real danger. You can hear it in the PRC. That we come with that kind of insincerity. I say it's a real danger because there's a subtle self-righteousness in all of us. 
when we defend ourselves against attacks, and we may defend ourselves against attacks, when we insist on being a true church of Jesus Christ, and we should insist on being a true church of Jesus Christ, when we point to another person's need for repentance and we need to address impenitence in others, the temptation in doing all those things, the real danger is to uphold our own righteousness while despising others and become insincere in our approach of the Lord's Supper. We may not come to the Supper that way or to church that way for that matter. but only as a repenting believer. And so the duty, the solemn duty, first of all, is that we examine ourselves. 1 Corinthians 11.28 has that explicit command regarding the Lord's Supper. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Do you examine yourself? You're called to, you're commanded to. To examine yourself prepared to come to God's house where you fellowship with Him. I'm not asking whether you prepare your body, whether you examine your face, whether you've put on nice clothes and, and, and made sure that you look proper. But is your, is your heart prepared? Ask. Not just before the Lord's Supper, though that's coming up in a month and a half, but ask before every worship service the simple question from Jesus' parable. Am I approaching God's presence today like the Pharisee or like the publican? That should be a regular question as a repenting believer. Or is a proud Pharisee who has no need of repentance? Am I coming sorrowing for my sin or holding a grudge against another member for their sin? Am I trusting in Christ alone for my justification or am I justifying myself by comparing myself to others who I deem more sinful? Am I desiring my faith to be strengthened and made more holy? Or am I feeling pretty strong already? Yes, I acknowledge that there is a danger of over-examination. There is a morbid introspection as well. The greater temptation, I think, and I believe is for most of us, is a lack of examination. There's also a, a morbid introspection wherein the believer focuses on his sin and wallows in his sin and dwells on his sinful nature and despairs because he sees his faith so weak and his desire so weak and his sorrow not deep enough. So to you who may be tempted to that morbid introspection, I, I remind you, we don't come to the Lord's Supper on the basis because we have strong faith. We don't come to the Lord's Supper because we think we're worthy on the basis of that faith. We're not looking at the faith itself, but as we examine ourselves and we notice that there's a sorrow for sin and a, and a faith in Jesus Christ and a desire, all those three are centered upon Jesus Christ. That's how I explained it in the first point. Why do you sorrow for sin? Because my sin is against Jesus Christ. Who am I believing? I'm not believing in my own faith. I'm believing in Jesus Christ. The only reason for my righteousness and justification in eternal life. 
what am I desiring that I go forth and improve on my own? No, I'm desiring His help, Christ's help, to strengthen my very faith that is weak, my life that is yet so ungodly. The examination of ourselves will result in looking to Christ not to dwell upon all my sins. It is said, for every one look you take at your sin, and you should look at your sin, or for every one look you take at your sin, you should take ten looks at Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean don't examine yourself, but as you examine yourself more, that means more looking to Jesus Christ. Outside of yourself. As represented at the supper. For your salvation. The calling to examine oneself is real. The second solemn duty that the catechism points us to in question and answer 82 is the duty to guard the Lord's table. It's not the main point of the sermon this morning, but it is one of the teachings of the catechism. In question and answer 81, we're shown the duty of our personal examination as individuals before we come to the supper. In question and answer 82, we find the duty to guard. Duty to guard the table. This is not just the work or the responsibility of the elders, though they take the lead. This is the duty of all of the confessing members of this church that the table of the Lord is guarded. Are they also to be admitted, question 82 asks, to the supper who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? We cannot look at the hearts of the people. We cannot see into the hearts of our fellow members. But God does show evidences of whether they're impenitent. And if he does show that a fellow member with his confession, the catechism says, and his life, he shows himself to be impenitent, unbelieving, ungodly. We may not just let it go and allow that person to come to the Lord's Supper. If we know a young couple is continuing in the sin of Sex before marriage, young people. We don't just let it go. If we know that a young person is continuing in the sin of drunkenness, we don't just leave it alone. Let them come to the supper. If we know that there is speech that is ungodly that continues to come, flow from the mouth of a person without repentance. That same mouth is not supposed to be partaking of the Lord's Supper with us. This is not optional. There is a corporate responsibility, as you know, that we have as a congregation it is one thing if we are unaware of impenitence in the heart of a fellow partaker, but it's another thing when we knowingly allow impenitent members to partake of the supper with us. That does not only endanger that impenitent person, but it endangers the entire congregation. And you know the passage that speaks of that, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-one and 32. For this cause, Paul says to the church at Corinth, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep, meaning they die. But when ye are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. God will bring His chastening hand. The Lord's Supper is going to be served in a month and a half in this congregation. If you know of a fellow member of the church that is impenitently continuing in sin, don't wait until the day before the Lord's Supper is served 
in a month and a half. Today, gently, as one who is a fellow sinner, you are called to approach a brother, a sister that you love and call him or her to repentance. That we may together come to the supper not claiming that we are sinless, but claiming that we are together sinners, repentant at the foot of the cross. There is not only a solemn duty to examine and guard, but finally there is also the promise of mercy at the supper. When the Spirit works in our hearts, true sorrow for, for sin, and the Spirit works in us a sincere trust in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness and a desire for His strengthening of us. There is a joyful celebration at the supper. There is the experience of His fellowship. This is my body, remember. He says to us, publicans, this is my body which is broken for you. This is the blood of the covenant which is shed for you. As surely, as surely as you see with your physical eyes the bread broken, and as surely you see the redness of the wine poured out, so sure can you be of my body and my blood broken and shed for you. As surely as you feel the hand in your hands the, the, the bread and the, and the cup, and as surely as you taste that bread and that wine, so sure can you be of my nourishment and strengthening of your faith and help in your godly life. There is forgiveness. There is nourishment. There is assurance. There is peace. In the way of repentance and faith. In the comforting words of the form of the Lord's Supper, we rest assured that no sin or infirmity which still remaineth against our will in us can hinder us from being received of God in mercy. Notice that's an echo of what the Catechism itself says in answer 81. And yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ and that, notice, their remaining infirmities, their remaining infirmities. When we come to the Lord's house as we do today, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we're going to feel remaining infirmities inside our hearts. That old man still rages. We don't worship God perfectly. There's sincerity, but there's still so much insincerity according to the old man. There's faith, but that faith is still so weak. And there's unbelief of the old man. There's still remaining infirmities within us. We trust. We rest assured. As we come as a repenting believer, the remaining infirmity inside of us, the remaining against our will, does not hinder us from being received of God in mercy. And he says, he does today too, to those who are repentant before him. Justified. I declare you Righteous for the sake of Jesus Christ alone. Forgiven of all your sins 
just as if you have obeyed all of my commandments. Because Jesus did in your place. This man, Jesus says, went home justified. Which man are you? Which woman are you? May the merciful God work in you true faith, sincere repentance, so that it may be said of you today also as you leave God's house and go to your house, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Rather than the other. Amen. Let's pray. Merciful God, in Thy house this morning we confess we are unworthy sinners. We have no right to approach Thee. We have come before Thy presence nevertheless. Sorry for our sins and clinging to Jesus Christ. Desiring Thy forgiveness and Thy strengthening. Speak to us as Thou dost promise. Bless Thy Word to our hearts. May the Spirit of Jesus Christ work in us in such a way that we may leave here justified and sanctified for the glory of Thy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.